Although I appear to be a professional woman, happily married and the mother of the two yonder tots, it's true that 20 years ago, when I was 15, I had such powerful sexual mojo that I could swerve the course of a man's life off the path of righteousness and into the thickets of evil. Confronting your nemesis this week on Selected Shorts. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. For those who don't know me, I'm a novelist who has written mostly for adults, but sometimes for children too, and often about adults and children. I've also had the great pleasure of working with Selected Shorts and its home theater on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which happens to be my neighborhood. I've taken great pleasure in listening to Selected Shorts over the years. It's not only the amazing choice of stories, it's also the way the actors read them. And that's been particularly instructive to me as a writer who's had to give a lot of readings over the decades. I always get very anxious about falling into what I'm going to call the reading voice. Uh, You know that voice, right? Marion entered the room, which was filled with morning light. I thought about this one year when I edited the Best American Short Stories, and I was asked to host an evening for it at Symphony Space. Mostly, I think, what helps me is to slow down and actually listen to the words, which is what the actors always do on selected shorts. I've had my own short stories dramatized on the program by Blythe Danner and Jill Eikenberry, and that was just thrilling and great. Just to hear something that you've written, uh, sort of performed by an actor you really love, they reminded me that when you're speaking or listening, just like when you're writing, every word matters. Now, of course, you say, of course, every word matters. No, but it really matters. None of it is there, like, flyover territory. None of it is there simply to be gotten through, you know, to hurry through, to get to the good parts. All of it needs to be the good parts. But the page and the stage are entirely different. Now, when I was 15, I went to a performing arts summer program in the Berkshires, which later became kind of the inspiration for my novel, The Interestings. Unfortunately, I wasn't a natural at acting as a teenager. That stiffness that I talked about, you know, while doing a reading, I would get that way while in a play. Every performance that I was in, whether it was a Neil Simon play or Eugene O'Neill, I had one voice, my Katherine Hepburn voice. Mother, where are you? Like, I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't get out of it. So I wasn't going to be an actor. But I knew then that the arts, and I'm putting quote marks around it, the arts, That enormous category, that huge bag of a category, excited me. And of course, it still does. Selected Shorts is an exhilarating mashup of the arts, both written and spoken. Maybe there should be a companion piece to Stanislavski's book, An Actor Prepares. We could call it A Writer Prepares, however, for some of us, that might basically involve changing into a better bathrobe. Like any writer, I guess I have certain themes that I return to again and again, whether I actually know it when I'm writing or not. I'm almost always writing about close relationships and how we sometimes basically carry certain people with us throughout our lives. And that is precisely the thing that connects today's stories. They're all about deep ties with another person, though they may not be the deep ties or the relationships that we usually expect to hear about. One story you're going to hear is about enemies revisiting a shared past. Another one finds two long-lost friends wondering what might have been between them. And the third story depicts a creative partnership gone wrong. When we hear these stories, we start to wonder, who are the people that we hold on to in our own lives? And we also wonder, maybe even more importantly, more pressingly, why do we hold on to them? Our first story, titled Once, is by Lauren Groff. The National Book Award nominee has written four novels and two short story collections, including Matrix, Fates and Furies, and Florida. Now, it's a particular pleasure for me to present Lauren Groff's work. She's a friend, and she's also someone I revere as a stylist. Sometimes when I'm reading her fiction, it gets to be a kind of stop-and-start experience, because I'll find myself needing to linger over all these unexpected lines. The unusual relationship 
at the heart of this Groff story reflects a naughty, combative history that has marked both parties. Our reader is Cynthia Nixon, an actor famed not only for Sex in the City, but roles in film and on Broadway, too. And now, here's Cynthia Nixon performing Once by Lauren Groff. I saw my enemy at the beach. This was in the surf shack after a long day of sun, and she was waiting for her early bird crab cake special. I said, hello, nemesis. She said, what? That's not my name. Then she took a closer look and said, oh, it's you. You is not my name either, but it's what she always called me. I never argue when disagreements hinge on semantics. So I sat and sent my boys out to play in the sand. You'd think they had enough of it having spent the whole day at the beach, but boys become men. And I challenge you to show me a man who is tired of putting things repeatedly into one bucket or another. The waiter came and I'll admit to flirting. Everyone is sexy at the beach all sunburned and windblown and golden at the edges with sand. All but my enemy, who had clear tubes in her nostrils, leading to a tank parked at her feet like a pet. She was wearing a silk scarf on her head, and although she'd always had the thin skin of the calorie strict, her body had somehow turned gray as smoke. I put on my sunglasses because the sunset was making my eyes water. When the waiter left, my enemy called out over the three tables between us, I see you haven't changed. That stung. She'd been the mother of my first boyfriend. In the tiny town where I grew up, there were only two castes, those who belonged to the country club and the rest. The lowest of the rest were the people who worked at the country club, and I was the snack bar girl. I wore black eyeliner under my eyes, which back then was considered risque. Even before she was the mother of my boyfriend, she had referred to me with her tennis friends as La Poubelle, which I'd taken as a sort of compliment until I went to the library to look the word up. So I seduced her son, and she started calling me you. The waiter put two globes of golden wine before me and said, Happy hour! Buy one, get one free, he winked. Oh, the legendary generosity of the tip dependent. It goes to show that although I have changed greatly, in fact, my most evident attributes have not. My enemy stood and dragged her tank to my table to sit across from me. She said, don't pity me, but I'm here sick and alone because of you. If my son's wife is a monster, it's because you ruined him forever for decent girls. I said, although I appear to be a professional woman, happily married and the mother of the two yonder tots, it's true that 20 years ago, when I was 15, I had such powerful sexual mojo that I could swerve the course of a man's life off the path of righteousness and into the thickets of evil. She smiled. You always had a way with words, she said. Speaking of which... I read your first book. I waited. She shrugged and said nothing. Well, she'd been in the poetry racket. Nobody would expect her to stoop to contemporary fiction. In her study, she'd had a sizable row of literary journals with her bylines in them. I'd run my hands across the spines, marveling when she was out of the house. She was also a librarian at the college a few towns away, in charge of the oddly complete section of medieval courtly romances. Her son had gotten all A's on his English papers, which had titles like Dusa, Good or Bad, and Duets, Love in the Chanson de Roland. Though I could still taste the bag bomb he rubbed on his lips before kissing me, I couldn't remember his face. Her face, I couldn't forget. Her crab cake special came, but she made the waiter box it up. I've lost my appetite, she declared. She stood and wobbled, then righted herself. 
Before she wheeled her tank away, styrofoam clamshell in the other hand, she said, nodding at my boys who were socking one another with plastic shovels, I'm not surprised you've done well for yourself. You always had such a grand ambition. From the first, the woman had the ability to send a single word whipping like a gyroscope across the endless floors of my mind. Ambition, well, of course I had it. But where I come from, for a girl to show her ambition is like walking topless down the street, legal, perhaps, but not done. I had set my sights higher. Those nights long ago, my boyfriend would be strumming In Your Eyes on his guitar, and I'd slip downstairs to the dim study and touch those journals and burn. I was going to take the literary world like a bull in a field of clover. I was supposed to vacation in the Mediterranean, not at a Florida condo with turquoise fountains 90 miles from where I'd live. I still think I have time to save the Amazonian jungles. The boys came, and there were years of nursing and potty training, and though the fires still crackled, much of the daily fuel I had to burn went to them. Still, I meant to translate Marie de France for some hip modern audience someday. I sat for a while alone, those two goblets having gone to my head. I felt old and tired. The boys climbed onto my lap, and I didn't make them wash their hands and even let them eat my fries. Something about how my enemy had looked when I came into the surf shack had struck me, but I couldn't bring it to the fore. The beach does that. All day, metaphors had eluded me. There'd been a wash of dead jellyfish on the beach, and all that had come to mind when I saw them glistening like that was breast implants. All of a sudden it arrived. My enemy, skinny in her scarf, dim against the sea, was like a wimpled lady I'd once seen in a tapestry bent over her needlework. At the lady's feet was a dog that had the snub-nosed look of the oxygen tank. Oh, those pious ladies of the past, bending their heads over their fancy work, dreaming of grand loves, of lepers and white stags, thinking of their effort that would ripple on the walls and please distant generations when they were no more than dusty bones. Things spun, and it wasn't just the double wine. Well, I reflected, if a questionable element came close to my boys, I'd scoop them into my maw and wing away like a pelican too. I ordered another double wine and sang the baby to sleep in the dusk. I see the doorway of a thousand churches. I smiled at the waiter, at the ocean, at the couples eking in with their sun-spotted skin, because after all, I'm like all mothers and yearn to be known for more than just the one most obvious thing. What a distance I have to go before I'm better than I am. That was Once by Lauren Groff, read by Cynthia Nixon. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Lauren is really interested in the nuances of complex adult relationships. And if you've read her, you know how wonderfully she's written about motherhood, childhood, and secrecy. Somebody could make a Venn diagram showing the ways in which all these themes overlap in her work. And maybe that could be included in a doctoral thesis about Lauren Groff's fiction— But I will leave that for somebody else to do, because I have a show to host. On this Selected Shorts program, we're exploring stories about pairs of people who share some inextricable link. Our next story, Slow and Steady, reconsiders a relationship between longtime acquaintances. While both parties have been living good and productive lives, they nevertheless feel haunted by questions of a shared past. Reading Slow and Steady is Hetien Park, an incredibly charming actor whose credits include the series Hannibal and The Outsider. 
This is Rachel Kong's story, Slow and Steady. It was too late for us to get drunk and fall into bed together. Not too late in the day, it was 9 a.m. I mean too late in life. Our timing was off. It had started being off before we had ever met, which was at age 18 in the library of our Ivy League university, where we both had jobs reshelving books. He left me notes in the stacks, and I left him notes by the water fountain. Not notes exactly, but call numbers, tip-offs to good book titles. We both wanted to be writers. It was never romantic between us, but it wasn't not flirting. We were 35 now. I was in Los Angeles for a meeting and we were in the same popular cafe. I had been eyeing the pastries, not wanting one exactly. He'd gotten close in order to confirm it was me and I hadn't noticed, so intently was I considering a bear claw. Sophie, he said, his face breaking into a grin. Long time. Gabe, I said surprised. It had been. It had been 13 years and he wasn't on Instagram, meaning I didn't know more about him than I should have. In fact, I knew next to nothing. His hair was less long and less unruly than it had been in college. I'd always found him beautiful. I suddenly remembered with a clarity that took me by surprise. What are you getting? He turned to me at the cash register. Just a coffee, I guess. Regular coffee? The barista looked at him, eyebrow lifting all these questions while the line ballooned. Yeah, I said, glancing behind us, flustered. I was too. Should we just get one big one and share it? We'd save a pause while he did a silent calculation. One dollar and 22 cents. The proposition seemed bold intimate even, but I found myself saying, sure, okay. One big coffee, the barista repeated, and a bear claw, Gabe added. In fluid movements, he passed the parceled pastry off to me while he sipped a bit of liquid from the full cup and brought it without spilling to the station where the milk and the sugar were. He pointed at both, did I want them? I nodded. With a long-handled metal spoon, he mixed in the sugar. The crystals were big and light brown. He sipped, then handed it to me to try. It was perfect. Hi, by the way, he said and leaned in for a hug. As I pulled away, I held my breath out of habit. He still frightened me. In college, kids like him had frightened me. Kids with parents who had taken them to museums as children and who had been raised to express their opinions at the dinner table. My Chinese immigrant parents had taken me to libraries, so I wasn't totally hopeless. Books had taught me some things, though not all. I'd never been Gabe's type, and I knew it. He'd dated rich girls with clear blue eyes and long, soft hair who came from families with vacation homes. At our college, it was rich people and white people and rich white people who boldly embarked on sexual encounters and long vacations and proclaimed opinions in our philosophy seminars. I'd gotten over this, I thought, and yet here I was with my heart beating faster than usual. I thought about all of this as we stood together, taking turns sipping coffee. Where are you headed? He asked. Honestly, I said, nowhere. I held up my folded up newspaper as proof I was planning on doing the crossword. Coincidence, he said, me too. I must have looked hesitant or scared because he added, are you anti-collaboration? I laughed, no, no, pro-collaboration. I welcome your assistance. We sat at one of the tables outside beneath a trellis, wisteria hanging down. Around us there were flowers and cacti and weeds that looked thrown there, but perfect in that rambling Los Angeles way. Sunlight dappled the crossword. How strange it was that we were both here, I thought. I'd flown in from Chicago only yesterday. After working our way through half the crossword with ease, we stalled. He moved my hand gently because it was covering a clue. He touched my wedding ring as he did. Eight down, he read aloud, slow and steady. Not a clue, I shook my head. We sat there in silence, thinking for a long moment. Why don't we go, he said. Walking could shake something up, slow and steady. Sure, I said, picking up my purse. As we walked, we talked. 
We'd wanted to be writers, and now we were. He told me about his writing. He was writing for a popular television show, and I told him the plot of my third novel. He showed me a picture of his dog, and I pulled up a picture of mine. To find the photo, I had to scroll past photos of my own family. I found myself not wanting to share those. An hour passed like this, walking and talking, and I didn't know what neighborhood we were in any longer. As we walked past men in orange breaking apart the sidewalk, one of them jackhammering, Gabe said something, but I couldn't hear it. What? I shouted. I said, you're the same, he said, too loud, because by the next block it was quiet. Bird chirps and distant airplanes overhead. I thought of the phrase noise pollution. Was every noise pollution, or was it a certain amount of noise all collected at a high volume that made it qualify as pollution? thought of everything we'd said to each other today and how it was already dissipating, how it would eventually fade into nothing. Though he'd said it admiringly, I hoped it wasn't true, that I was the same. I hoped I was different. I said, you too, and I meant this. I'd envied him then and now, this coherence that his inner and outer natures were aligned. My fear got in the way of communicating exactly who I was. What I wanted to say always came out wrong. It was why I was a writer, so I could carefully consider and say what I meant. I would have liked to think I'd caught up to him. I'd learned to reconcile my private and public selves in the years since. I had learned some confidence or learned to project it. I went on book tours and read aloud and more or less said what I thought. Around him, I still stuttered. Are you married? I blurted out. No, he said, but look. He stopped walking, reached into his pants pocket, pulled out a small velvet pouch. We were paused beside a tall cactus with arms that flexed up. He shook the ring out into my hand and it made a pleasing, clinking noise against my own ring. It's beautiful. I meant it. My girlfriend's in the park, actually, he said, gesturing. I realized we were standing at the edge of it. With the dog, want to meet them, my family? I could tell he was trying that word out, liking it. I wondered what my own was up to in this moment. From a distance, we could see her. She was sitting on a bench, peering into her phone. And the green grass all around her was dotted with dandelions, yellow and white, young and old. I saw her long, blonde hair with a baseball cap over it and knew that must be her. She flicked a tennis ball to a dog, a border collie, and it ran to fetch it. Felt a swell of something, like... Loss. Also betrayal. Thought we'd been wandering, but now I realized he had led me purposely here. Is she an actress? My voice came out cracked, soft. She went to school for nursing, but yeah, you know, the city. She acts now. I realized suddenly that he was being modest. I had seen her movies before. She was actually very famous. I realized I knew things about her love life because I had read about it. Gabe had been left largely out of the tabloids, but I knew that before him she dated an actor who played the main superhero in a superhero movie. That she was now dating Gabe didn't come as a surprise. He wasn't particularly ripped or breathtaking, but it didn't matter somehow. Had never mattered. He was intelligent and a lively conversationalist, and because he exuded his strange confidence, he'd always dated the most beautiful women. What's your dog's name? He's hairy. He's a sweetheart and smart. As he started to walk toward her and I trailed behind, I said, no, wait. I wanted to get close enough to smell the perfume she wore at the same time that I really, really didn't. He looked at me, curious. I think I should head back. What? Really? Yeah, I'm sorry. I turned my wrist toward me, but I wasn't wearing my watch. I'd forgotten it. I should go. I'm so sorry, I added. Next time. I cringed at this. I didn't mean it. I was just saying things just to say them. We'd long since tossed our shared coffee cup, and her hands were empty. 
He took both of mine in his. My hands were cold and his warm ones. Well, it was good to see you, Sophie. Running into you, it makes me... He trailed off. It's good to see you, he repeated. We could see each other on purpose sometime. Let me know when you're in L.A. again. I'd like that, I said. Back at my hotel room, I stripped naked and put on the too long and too thick Terry bathrobe. I had a missed call from my husband. He'd called the hotel, and so the black plastic phone blinked red with its voice message. We made it a point to call each other's hotels whenever one of us was away. Felt more special to receive a message tied to a physical place. We miss you, he said. We meant him and our toddler and our dog, my family. It's raining here. I found your note. I'd left him a note inside his pillow, not expecting him to notice it overnight. And I was right. I would have noticed the crispy paper right away, but he didn't. It was one of the things I loved about him. And I figured out what slow and steady was in case you're stuck on it. I don't think it counts as cheating. The phone stopped blinking once the message had been heard. I went to the bathroom where I peered into the little round mirror, the one that enlarged everything disgusting on my face, my broken capillaries and dull skin and giant pores, the lines around my eyes and the black hair that was split at the ends. I wondered if this was what actresses also saw in those round mirrors or if they looked into them and were pleased. Gabe and I had kissed in college just once. All day I'd held the memory at bay. In 13 years, I hadn't let myself recall it. Now I wondered if it could really have been me who lived it. It was senior year and we were at an off-campus party. We tried to spin the bottle with an empty wine bottle and it was more boring than we anticipated, kissing people so openly and so lightly, so we'd moved on. What about seven minutes in heaven, someone joked. We wrote our names on scraps of paper and threw them into a salad bowl. I watched Gabe as he dropped his hand into the bowl and drew out a slip of paper and read it aloud. Sophie, what were the ridiculous odds? I'd been terrified it wouldn't be me, and now was terrified that it was. Lila and Daniel were in the closet, and Billy had tasked himself with timing them. He banged on the door when the seven minutes were up, and my heart stopped. We were next. The closet was pitch black except for the strip of light at the bottom. I'd been drinking all night, but suddenly felt extraordinarily, terrifically sober. Since you picked me, I said, does that mean you get to do whatever you want? It suddenly seemed very difficult to breathe. Less oxygen in a closet, I supposed, and I wondered if my breath seemed labored. I tried to adjust it so as not to seem I was making too big a deal out of this. I hadn't done this before, not even in middle school, and especially not in middle school. We don't have to do anything if you don't want to, Gabe said kindly. We were pressed up together in the small closet and the coats together smelled like a thrift store. I wondered if he could hear how fast my heart was beating. We could just... He swished some of the clothes around to make it seem like something exciting was happening. I put my hand against his face and reached my fingers up to some of the hair that spilled out from behind his ears. He took that for the invitation that it was. He leaned in to kiss me so softly that I hardly registered it was happening. I thought everyone had been drinking the same disgusting vodka concoction, but his mouth tasted like Sprite. Was that all he'd had? And my whole body thrummed, wanting more, knowing that whatever we wound up doing would not be enough in the slightest. Emboldened, I kissed him back and he pushed me against some synthetic fur, and an ironing board fell over from where it was propped and on top of us. We were in college. Who ironed? We repositioned ourselves on top of it, surfers on a surfboard, and resumed. I tried not to think of how Gabe had probably touched a thousand girls in the same way. I tried not to think about how we would never speak of this again. I wondered how many minutes had passed, and thinking it was too many minutes, whatever it was. When our seven minutes were up, Billy knocked on the door. He opened it with a disgusting, pimp-like grin. We spilled out into the light. I smoothed my hair and Gabe smoothed his and we looked around. Nobody was there but Billy. Everyone had lost interest in the game. 
The closet door stayed open. Can I get you a beer? Gabe had said then, casually, as though we hadn't just had our tongues in each other's mouths. Sure, I said. We trudged silently to the keg, trying to appear normal. Gabe pumped the keg expertly, handed me my cup. He watched me sip from it. You don't want one? I asked. I have a test in the morning, he said, unfortunately. He touched my shoulder. I couldn't meet his eye. This had been a game to him, I suddenly realized. It was a game, of course. I had been seven of a million minutes he'd had in heaven, and I felt ashamed, as I always did, and as I would for years to come. Not about this forgotten thing specifically, but ashamed, more generally, that things were a bigger deal to me than they were to other people. I worked hard to cultivate the opposite, to care less. And mostly I'd succeeded. Hey, this is for you, Gabe said and handed me a small folded note that looked like the kind he'd leave for me to find in the stacks of the library. Don't open it till I'm gone, okay, he said. I nodded obediently, I put it in my pocket. After Gabe left, I finished my beer alone. There was no one I cared to talk to. I perched the cup on top of the overflowing trash bin and walked back to my dorm room, my body humming more loudly with the embarrassment and longing. I felt constantly like a broken machine. The longing was to be someone different, someone better. I'd already changed into pajamas and got into bed when I remembered the note in my pocket. I removed it from my jeans. I wondered if it was one of our call numbers something funny for me to look up in the library later. Neither of us worked there anymore. I'd gotten a different job and Gabe had never needed financially to work there to begin with. I unfolded it. Instead of the familiar series of numbers and letters, it said only a name. The slip of paper read, Nadia, but he had lied and announced it was me. I remembered that now. The rest was a blur. That was Hetian Park performing Rachel Kong's Slow and Steady. So that twist at the end, the so-called surprise ending, is something I came to crave as a kid when I first read stories by O. Henry. Also, I should add, when I first watched The Twilight Zone, I tried to put surprise endings into all the short stories that I wrote growing up, though pretty often I fell back on the cheapest trick imaginable. I'd write an entire elaborate story, and the last line would be, and then I woke up. It had all been a dream. Luckily, that is not the case with Rachel Kong's marvelous story, whose ending feels earned and convincing and provides a window in which to look deeply at her two characters. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. If you're just joining us or missed a bit of the first half of the show, no problem. The easiest way to find it is on our website, selectedshorts.org. While there, just tap the subscribe to podcast button and you'll find links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and others. And we love it when you share selected shorts with others, so do that, please. This episode is all about people who are indelibly tied to one another 
for reasons that may not be immediately apparent. We've heard about rivals and lovers, but in Something Shiny by Elizabeth Crane, it's about unlikely creative partners. One woman, a writer, invites another woman, an actor, to study her life. And from there, things get complicated. Elizabeth Crane is the author of smart, slightly warped, and very funny books, including The History of Great Things and When the Messenger is Hot. The actor Kate Walsh is recognizable for roles in Grey's Anatomy, 13 Reasons Why, and The Umbrella Academy. Here she is, performing Elizabeth Crane's story, Something Shiny. So get this. They're going to make a movie of my life. I kind of care less about the movie, but I figure this is probably my only chance to win an Oscar, which I've dreamed about since I was in seventh grade. Really, I just want to wear the jewels and maybe a simple tiara and have the chance to say, it's Prada. Actually, it would be fine just to be nominated, even if I was in one of those categories that doesn't get televised and that they show all at once in a quick montage and the kind of slow two hours in the middle of the show. I don't really have any desire to be famous. I just like to have something shiny with my name on it to leave behind. Anyway, I hadn't ever given a lot of thought to exactly how to do that, not being an actress or a director or anything related to that at all. But then all these crappy things happened, and I wrote a book about it, a memoir, they call it, even though I'm in my 30s and it seems a bit premature in spite of the events, and made sure to work it out in the fine print that I'd be able to write the screenplay as well. I realize it's a long shot. So yesterday I get this message on my machine saying, hi, this is Apple Fowler. And you may have already heard I'm going to be playing the part of Wendy in the film version of No But Wait, It Gets Worse. And I was hoping I could talk to you about it and so on. Very bizarre to hear someone refer to you as a part. Like you're either fictional or not whole. To be honest, Apple Fowler is a good enough actress, but she's kind of young to be playing me, even where the book starts. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Anyway, I call her back, and she's really nice, much nicer than you'd expect a movie star to be, and asks if she can come over for a coffee. So we make plans, and she comes over, and she asks me a lot of questions and looks around my apartment like it's this curiosity, like it's somehow different from any other average person's apartment which I suppose maybe she hasn't had access to as the child of a famous director. Seems like she's never seen a house plant or a refrigerator magnet or um, a dog. Still, she's easy to talk to and seems genuinely interested in getting to know me and says that she loved the book and can't even begin to imagine how I made it through everything, and I'm sure she can't given that She seems like a little weirded out by my average person's apartment, which isn't on the long list of things I personally consider myself to have made it through. Anyway, she eventually asks if she can stay for a week or so to really become the character. And she offers to pay me rent, which isn't an issue since my book's been on the bestseller list for eight weeks and I've got plenty of room. Plus, I mean, who wouldn't want to be friends with Apple Fowler? Maybe she knows George Clooney's email address. I agree with the condition that the bathroom is mine first and the phone is off limits, which isn't a problem for her since she's got a cell phone and also because she says she really wants to experience my life and intends to use the phone for emergencies only. She says she'll be as quiet as a mouse, which she is, and she sticks by her thing not to use her phone. But right away, I realized that it's not an awful lot of fun being watched which I suppose is what the readers are doing in a certain way, except they're not in my house. The first day or two, she just takes a lot of notes. It's immediately bizarre to me to see someone writing something down when I'm in the middle of doing something absolutely mundane, something that as a writer I hadn't previously considered was worth writing down, like hand-washing a sweater, which of course is not something Apple has ever witnessed, which perhaps would seem even more unusual to a non-shore-oriented person when followed by using a tweezer to pry out the sink stopper, which broke ages ago, one of those numerous daily adjustments I stopped thinking about as anything that even needs repair, like the way I play my answering machine messages back on my stereo because the machine records messages but won't play them back, or the way I serve Leo, my pug, his Alpo out of my Chrysler building mug on the sofa every night because he won't eat until I'm eating and he won't 
even eat on the floor by the table because it's just too far for me, which I personally think is really considerate on his part. And therefore, I do not mind fixing him his dinner in my Chrysler building mug, seeing as how he's so obviously trying to keep me company, all of which Apple scribbles down as somehow being crucial and noteworthy character traits. After the watching and the note-taking, she starts trying to imitate me. My gestures, facial expressions, my voice. I think she's sort of got it, but what do I know? It's not like I ever studied myself. But you think you know how you seem to people, and you really don't. I think of myself as unremarkable in a lot of ways. I don't have a New York accent. I don't think I have overly weird habits, like not letting my food touch on the plate or being especially neat or sloppy. Although I am sometimes afflicted by a tiny bit of obsessive compulsive disorder when it comes to locking my door, I usually have to unlock it and lock it again to make sure it's locked. And I tend to check it a bunch of times before I go to bed too, which obsession has not gone past Apple. But so anyway, she manages to find interest in the way I shuffle my slippered feet and in my fairly rigid schedule of having frozen donut holes and 1% milk in bed when Seinfeld comes on at 7.30. Leo joins me at the foot of the bed with a milk bone, which I notice because she shuffles her slippered feet over to my bed with her own donut holes and milk and milk bone before I have a chance to get there first. I do end up letting her chip in when she asks to use my shampoo and conditioner and pretty much all of my products. It may be equally as fascinating to me that she thinks using my shampoo has some relevance to the Wendy experience as it probably is to her that I use generic shampoo. Anyway, she goes as far as getting her hair cut like mine by my hair cutter. And even though her hair is poker straight, mine takes 45 minutes to blow out and still needs to be slept on for a night if I don't want to look like an extra in Dynasty, she wants to know where I got my purple camouflage pants and all my little beaded cardigans, which I'm sort of known for and has never heard of eBay. So I sit her down at the computer and take some bit of time to explain to her how the internet works. And when we finally get into eBay, although she's completely willing to out and or overbid for any item by a ridiculous amount, she doesn't want to wait for the auctions to end. So we venture out to get her some sweaters, which I wouldn't have minded so much if she weren't a size two. Those cardigans tend to be on the small side. I don't know if women were smaller in the 50s or what. And she ends up with a spectacular midnight blue one. I could have never even gotten one arm into. But I try to keep my resentment to myself. She was just born that way. Naturally, I don't ever drive around New York. But Apple has a car and knows from the book that I lived in L.A. for a while. After a fight with my then-boyfriend, I got on a plane in an alcoholic blackout. And even though I sobered up about a week later, I wasn't in any big rush to get back to New York. And that driving was this huge deal. And I'm not even going to discuss the whole matter of buying a used car in L.A., which is a trauma I just don't have the time to get into. Suddenly, having to drive anywhere, driving a mile even to get milk, that it's some gigantic Ralph's where the milk is, of course, in the back and you have to walk three city blocks through the store to get it so the total milk errand time is never less than 45 minutes. But also having to drive 37.4 miles to and from work every day, not to mention the many thousands of dollars spent on auto repair, totaling more than the actual cost of my car. I lived in L.A. for four years and never got comfortable driving. And so Apple asked me to take her for a ride in her expedition, which to me is the equivalent of driving the Broadway bus. And we go on a short rectangular route, all right turns, up Riverside Drive to 107th Street, back down West End Avenue and home, which is going to have to be enough for her to observe my driving weirdness, which apparently it is because she finds it noteworthy that I keep both hands on the wheel at all times at 10 and 2. Isn't that the law? And can only change the radio stations at a red light and cannot do anything like change a tape or drink something, even with a cup holder and a straw, she asks. And of course, would never even consider trying to use a cell phone. She also makes note of my Tourette's like swearing at any car that comes within three feet of the perimeter of our car, which is, of course, pretty much constantly. And I tell her that that trait was genetically passed on to me by my mother who makes creative use of the word cock in any number of unpleasant driving scenarios. 
Apple then makes the same loop and has to correct herself a few times when she's inclined to zap a Ricky Martin song while in motion, but quickly gets the cursing down. And by the time we get back, has also incorporated other small gestures, like the way I shake my watch down towards my wrist when it gets too tight, and the way I wear my sunglasses on top of my head to keep the hair out of my face, but then squint the whole time. And I begin to feel a little uncomfortable, wishing I were some perfectly generic, gestureless individual, which is apparently not true, according to my friend Sue, who calls later that day when I'm out picking up a quart of milk and is still on the phone with Apple when I walk in. Apple looks a little guilty and apologizes to me for picking up the phone by force of habit and tells Sue to hold on and passes the phone to me. But when I say hello, she says, I think we have a bad connection. I have to go anyway. I'll call you tomorrow. Even though I can hear her perfectly well. Apple seems pleased with how easily she was able to convince Sue that she was me. But I've been mistaken for other people on the phone plenty of times, and I try not to make too much of it this time. Day three, she asked me a lot of questions about when it was that I started drinking and why, since the book starts right after I got out of rehab, and some of this is covered in the book. But when I started drinking, it was just this complete sense of rightness with the world. Maybe some people feel that way naturally. Maybe some other people talk with Jesus. I don't know. How I've stayed sober is as much a mystery to me as to anyone. I just celebrated 90 days of sobriety when my boyfriend broke up with me. And at that point, I still wanted to drink pretty much every day. But I had already enrolled in grad school for a doctorate in philosophy, also in a blackout, although it turned out to be a better idea than most of the ones I came up with while unconscious which, although a debatable program given future job prospects, gave me something more constructive to do than sit around and contemplate the leak in my ceiling, which, trust me, is not a metaphor, neither the leak nor its subsequent contemplation. I did have a job at the time, and the thought of getting one was kind of horrifying. Apple asks a lot of questions I'm not sure I really have answers for. It's not as though I'm some Olympic triumph over tragedy story with violin music playing in the background as I discuss the nature of my faith in God and explain that I believe that there was some mystical reason I survived being hit by a car going 45 miles an hour on Wilshire Boulevard. I was walking. I was in a very bad drunk walking accident, and I'm sure I crossed against the light, not to mention that there aren't even a lot of sober pedestrians in LA, and I'm sure the driver who hit me was not at fault in any way. Without anything more than a scraped knee, This after landing in front of a Starbucks that was a good half block from the site of impact. It wasn't until after I ordered a double espresso that I happened to notice the totaled Lexus still in the middle of the street. Some people in the Starbucks were asking me if I was okay, which I thought was odd since there was a total Lexus in the street that I might have someone dead in it. It didn't. The driver only had minor injuries. And they told me that the total Lexus had just hit me. To which I think I said something like, really? Because, of course, I had no memory of anything before that double espresso. Anyway, the point is that while it was undoubtedly the first time I noticed that fairly bad things happened when I drank, I didn't quit drinking because I suddenly thought I was called to go on some drunk walking lecture circuit or because some clouds parted and Hello Kitty told me to carry a message of love and tolerance and rebirth or because some other upper-level spiritual message came to me, which I can't really even make up an imaginary example of. That's how ridiculous I think it is. I'm pretty much of the I-have-no-fucking-idea school of why the hell this has all gone down. Whether God hates me or loves me or is involved in other things entirely, I have no idea. I've run into more than a few people on the book tour who've had experiences similar to or worse than mine who tell me the particular ways they've stayed sober, which usually involve a very particular God idea I either can't comprehend or don't want to comprehend, like God speaking to them through their dog or whatever. Although I have a close personal relationship with Leo, I'm 100% certain that he is just a dog and not a deity of any kind. And I always nod politely, But the truth is, I'm looking into their black eyes and thinking nobody's home. I'm sure that a lot of people just get to a point where they realize they don't have answers for certain things. And so they just tell themselves these little lies so they can make sense of some senseless things. Whereas personally, 
I'm not so inclined to be 100% certain that there's even a sun in the sky, which is not unrelated to the whole philosophy study thing. But what I do know is I wasn't built with that switch. Otherwise, I might have skipped the booze. There's not a second of my day that goes by that I can avoid the awareness that I'm different. And the best I could do now is try to blend in and hope no one notices. Anyway, so Apple asks a few questions about my love life. And looks like she's about to cry when I tell her I felt at my absolute loneliest when I was in love the one time. Not the same pre-rehab ex. In hindsight, I don't know how to describe that other than a hostage situation. And I guess I don't do a very good job of explaining since she does seem to understand that we were right for each other, but not the part about why I broke it off. Maybe I'm not so sure myself. I know I lose Apple somewhere in the middle of this story, but anyway, she listens to all this and looks at me empathetically, but in that way that you know she has no resources to draw upon for this part. And look, I don't wish these resources on anyone. She practically begs to come along to my regular AA meeting, which I explain is not open to non-alcoholics. And I try to emphasize the word anonymous in some way that will make her grasp its meaning. I give her a schedule of some meetings that are also open to non-alcoholics. But she shows up at my meeting a few minutes after it starts and raises her hand and says, hi, I'm Wendy and I'm an alcoholic. And proceeds to share about how much gratitude she has for her sobriety and how her life is very small. Oh, really? And then in spite of the difficulties that most of you know about, the promises of AA have really come true for her and she has found an inner peace. And for the first time, she feels fully present in her life one day at a time, like I'd ever say anything so cheesy. And then, as if it isn't enough that she's stolen my name and my difficulties, some of my friends go up to her after the meeting and tell her how great she looks, that she seems really well and rested and more open or something. And they ask her to go to a coffee at Utopia as though she's me, as though I weren't actually there in plain sight, as though someone who weighs easily 40 pounds less than I do and has an obvious nose job and a tattoo around her wrist and is a movie star is the same person they've known for nine years. I finally walk over to the group and I go, uh, hello, <laughs> did we have a vote that it's okay to drop acid in Alcoholics Anonymous today because you seem not to be able to tell the difference between me and Apple Fowler. And my friend Josh goes, did you hear something just now? And my friend Sue goes, something kind of mumbly? And my friend Missy goes, a little bit like the grown-ups on Charlie Brown. And Josh goes, and everybody laughs, like nothing unusual is going on. Then Sue looks right at me and puts on some lipstick as though she's confused me with a compact. And I rush to the ladies' room to see that I look the same as always. But as I'm walking away, I notice in the reflection that the shape of me matches the ancient wallpaper that's peeling off the walls. And so I move to the section of the wall that's painted the kind of icky pea green. And I see the shape of me is now pea green. And when a woman comes out of the stall and I touch her arm and say, excuse me, and I'm about to ask if I look all right to her, but she sort of just looks past me and brushes her arm like she has an itch and then walks away. My friends are already gone when I go back to the meeting room and I noticed that I had been standing in front of a shiny new filing cabinet when Sue was putting on her lipstick, but I still feel sure it wasn't the cabinet she was using as a mirror. Of course, as I walk away, I plan to tell Apple, I know I said she could stay longer, but I really need my privacy now and that she needs to leave. But when I get home, her stuff is already gone, which is a great relief to me since I'm not very good at confronting people. There's a giant houseplant and a note that says, thanks so much for sharing yourself with me. I do freak out for about five minutes because Leo doesn't come running to the door to greet me, during which time I become certain Apple's taken him too. But I finally find him sleeping next to my bed. I have eight messages on my machine, which is highly unusual. And I take the tape out and play them back on the stereo. And there are messages from Sue and Missy and Josh saying how happy they are to see me doing so well now. And there are a few more from some other friends of mine who seem to think I've talked to them recently, which I haven't. And worst of all, 
messages from my sister and my ex both saying how great it was to see me and how much lighter I seem. I think they mean this metaphorically. And my ex has that phone voice I haven't heard since a few months before we broke up, that sex voice. Leo refuses dinner on the sofa. And when he finally eats, it's not very much, and it's on the floor, like normal dogs. And he continues to act generally mopey for a while. And then, don't you know, the next day, in the supermarket, I get to the checkout line, and there's a picture of Apple holding hands with my ex-boyfriend under a headline reading, Apple Fowler's New Mystery Man. And if that isn't bad enough, the checker thinks I'm a shelf of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum and I have to go home and order all my groceries all over again from the internet, which is obviously, at this point, the least of my problems. I continue to go to my AA meeting for a while, but people mistake me for a broken chair or an exhaust vent. And every time I try to share, all they hear is a muffled voice and they just ask everyone else to speak a little louder. For a few months, I try to phone my friends, but it's the same thing every time. Hello? Hello? And they hang up. My emails all come back to me. Although for some reason the landlord and the utilities still like my money and most internet businesses seem to have no problem accepting my credit cards, which I guess isn't so surprising. And so I order everything that way. It was sort of disorienting at first, to put it mildly, living this way. Leo finally came around after he realized Apple wasn't coming back. But I'd be lying if I said we were as close as we once were. I still go out to the park sometimes or to the museums, since you can obviously get in for free when you pass for a Picasso. But I was starting to feel like I was in a bad horror movie, and I did think about messing with people's heads or robbing banks or something, but it's not really in me. And I never did get interested in taking advantage of my... Well, I don't even know what I am now. I'm not invisible. I'm just sort of hidden, like a chameleon without the taste for insects. So finally... I just gave up hoping I'd be seen and decided to stay in most of the time, which, to be honest, is not a dramatic change in lifestyle. So Apple makes the movie, and it gets rave reviews, movie of the year and all that, and she's on the cover of every magazine and gets nominated for Best Actress. But I am, of course, overlooked for the screenwriting credit or any kind of credit. It seems all but forgotten that this movie is about a real person's life, but apparently Apple Fowler is better at being me than me, because not only does she show up on the red carpet wearing a tiara and my Prada dress, she actually wins the Oscar. Wins the Oscar for being me. And she bursts into tears and thanks her higher power and her agent and my sister and her fiancé, my ex-boyfriend, who is naturally also weeping in the audience. And she's America's sweetheart. And she's Apple Fowler again. And there is something shiny with my name on it. But there's still no me. You just heard Something Shiny by Elizabeth Crane, performed by Kate Walsh. I think one of the reasons I write fiction, as opposed to nonfiction, is that fiction writers basically get to make up everything from scratch, including the characters. But when I was in grade school, I was, like, really obsessed with real-life people. And there was a series of biographies that I loved, um, and they were for children, and they took a lot of liberties with their subjects' lives. All the books, I seem to remember, would begin with a line like, Eleanor Roosevelt woke up and stretched Oh, another day was beginning. I mean, how did they know they weren't there with her? I would be terrified of taking such liberties as a writer. So I don't imagine that I'm ever going to write a book about someone unless that person was created in that strange dream laboratory where fictional characters are given life. If the stories in this episode help reframe one of your own intimate connections with someone else, let us know via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We really love to hear from you. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. 
Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Sherman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Lemberg Foundation. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.